Welcome to the Dialectic by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the Rajput. I'm Glenn Carl, the Wasp. Today we are going to do something very interesting. We've cheekily titled our podcast, Enter the Dragon. China is creating new world order. So, when we talk about this topic, we have to address three questions. First, if we are speaking about a new world order, we have to define the old world order. What was that post-war world order? Second, what is this new world order that China is championing? Third, what are the implications of this new world order for the US, for China, for Europe, for major powers like Japan and India, and for the so-called Global South? So, Glenn, what is this post-war world order? Well, it's a fundamental question, of course, and, and one that I, I think because I have uh, so inhabited in my adult professional life um, the, the framework uh, of the world order uh, as a practitioner, as a government official, that and then uh, I hope as uh, at least an inspiringly intellectual, aspiring intellectually uh, focused person. Um, well, you are a first-rate intellectual, Glenn. <laughs> uh, I, I just I take... even even Peter Isaacson <laughs> agrees to that. He disagrees with with, okay. with, with, with what you think, <laughs> and well, probably misrepresents it from time to time. But he certainly thinks you're a top intellectual. But that that then leads almost uh, inevitably to um, unconscious assumptions of of uh, accepted uh, facts or perspectives, which is an error because one needs to be aware and define them. Um, the, the way you titled, I'll start this all, but uh, I, I, I know that we had decided uh, early on that we weren't going to discuss books, but I'm going to begin by uh, alluding to a book, actually. Uh, the title you've given is um, Dragon by the Tail, or I forget exactly what Enter the Dragon. Was. Enter the Dragon. Bruce Lee's movie, a reference to that. <clears throat> Enter the Dragon. Well, great minds work alike, apparently, uh, because <clears throat> when we discuss origins, and that's that's the question that you're asking me to, to uh, define, really, uh, or the framework, um, for the the world order and more particularly us china relations which are shaping and uh defining the world order that, that we live in now uh about the best book spectacularly interesting to me that i can think of is actually titled dragon by the tail and it's by a an american diplomat from oh gosh now 75 years ago named john Patton davies uh, he's forgotten today, <clears throat> uh, but uh, he was a significant player in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, and unfortunately for him and for us in the 1950s also. Uh, he was one of the China hands whom the Republicans and the conservatives accused, quote, of losing China to the communists. Uh, that's a scurrilous, uh, outrageous, totally incorrect slur. Uh, but it's an important one because it, it shaped a lot of American policy with respect to China and how the world um, has come to to play out over the past 75 years and particularly today. And it's his memoir, one of his two memoirs, and he discusses his meetings with Mao in 1944 uh, and the 
the ardent uh, arguments in the U.S. government about whether the United States should support the communists in the war against Japan. Of course, we uh, we were supporting Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, and it was a heated argument at the time about what we should do. The, ultimately, the doctrinaire position, which is that Americans should never support communism, which is totalitarian, won out. But uh, almost to a person, the professional uh, uh, American uh, diplomats, intelligence officers, military officers, uh, found the communists uh, more impressive, less corrupt, more likely to win, and uh, possibly uh, influenceable, a bad word, uh, if we were to work with them rather than simply to shun them. Uh, so I recommend that book highly as a starting point. So listeners um, who have not heard our podcast on Taiwan should go back and do so because Glenn talked about how the CIA snuck in through the back door in China. This is during World War II. Uh, at that time, it was the OSS. And, um, and the history of the CIA is, in fact, deeply tied in with the history of China. And uh, those of you who do not remember Chinese history should remember that there was obviously a war that uh, the Chinese fought, a guerrilla war against the Japanese. But within China, there were many warlords. And within China, two organizations emerged, the nationalists and the communists. And they fought a brutal civil war over many years. Eventually, the communists won and the nationalists fled to Taiwan. And that division persists today. But Glenn, let me take you back. Let's loop back, as Rory Stewart says in in their podcast, or in in the podcast, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart do the rest is politics. Let's loop back to the question: What is this post-war order that uh, you have alluded to, but yet not yet defined? Well, really, from the the uh, end of World War II, the the American triumph. Of course, the United States was by every. Uh, index, uh, the great winner of of uh, this global cataclysm of World War II. And uh, our listeners may uh, recall that in 1945, up until I would say probably the, sometime in the late 60s, the United States accounted for uh, 50% of the global GDP, which is just stunning. 5% of the world's population uh, uh, responsible for 50% of the world's production. Uh, and that's just production and doesn't talk about financial centers and so on. So the US shaped uh, and was triumphant militarily uh, the world order. What was that? But, but if I may interject, that, that number was disproportionately high because Europe imploded in World War II. And Japan, as well, stood defeated and devastated after new two nuclear Absolutely. weapons dropped. dropped well, the world was Hiroshima destroyed. And Nagasaki. So, yeah. so America was at an unusually high water tide, and fifty percent of the world GDP at that time was not sustainable. But it also demonstrated America's extraordinary industrial prowess. America's vast resources, because America had an entire continent at its disposal. The European countries had to go and colonize in Africa and Asia, and that's where they got their raw materials, and that's what gave them captive markets. But America uh, was able to stretch from sea to shining sea. It had everything. It had oil. It had 
all the metals it needed. It also had, uh, thanks to, I mean, you're a wasp, you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, thanks to the wasps it had, the industrial know-how, and the North won against the South in the Civil War, which meant that the North could industrialize, the South would have tried to keep it more agrarian. And so America had everything set up for massive industrial expansion. And at that time, America was not incurring much debt. So America was, in fact, the creditor to the world. To the and world. So, Amer so America at that time was this in this extraordinary situation of prowess, which meant that America could dictate the post-war order. And America had a streak of idealism. Uh, Woodrow Wilson in uh, World War One and at the end of World War One tried to create the League of Nations, which was of course torpedoed by the U.S. Congress. So um, bipartisanship isn't very common in U.S. history. It's not or anywhere, <laughs> or anywhere, or anywhere. <laughs> exactly, yeah. countries yeah. tend to be divided. And and the failure of the League of Nations, which by the way was stationed in Geneva, led. To the emergence of the United Nations, a new form of global governance, but this time it was based in New York, not in Geneva. And the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund were located in Washington, D.C., a stone's throw, actually, from the White House, uh, just a few blocks. So, uh, interestingly, right. the, the, the center of economic gravity shifted west, and the post-war order was an American creation which um, envisaged the end of war, some form of rules-based, um, both political and economic system. There was even uh, the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. So this whole architecture was intended, uh, intended to create a world that would be more peaceful and, um, and that would bring, in the words of Harry Truman, development to the less developed societies. Um, correct me if I am missing anything, Glenn. No, that's exactly. I'll, I'll just add, um, you know, as, as preamble, um, one or two uh, facts. It's hard to. I see this with my children. Of course, they're born two generations after World War II. But the world today, um, almost no one um, realizes consciously how all defining World War II and its consequences uh, were for uh, my generation growing up in the 50s and 60s. It shaped, defined everything. Why was America triumphant? You can, uh, Americans uh, tend to think, well, it's our intrinsic merit and, and expertise and so on. Surely the, it the is. Fact, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Well, I mean, the wasps are created to other people. You know. <laughs> the, uh, the wasps created the shining city on the hill, and you still live next to Boston. That's right. <laughs> no, but so, why was America triumphant? Because it was a, a sanctuary continent with all of the resources and, and expertise necessary. In particular, the expertise came in the form of literally uh, refugees. The cream of yes. Germany's intellectual crop came to America, and it's because of the flight from the Nazis that American intellect universities came of age and became world-class. Prior to that, they were parochial on the whole. One third of all the buildings in Germany, the entire country, were destroyed by the uh, Soviets, the British, and the Americans. One third of an entire country's buildings were flattened. Almost every city of any size in Japan was literally turned into ash. The United States suffered nothing. Now, there are hundreds of thousands of American soldiers killed, but no uh, no harm, and on the contrary, dramatic benefit uh, industrial, economically, 
So fine. What did the United States seek to do? What has the world been? And that what is the world that the United States continues to champion? And that many people, um, uh, framework that many people in the world, I would say most, um, aspire to uh, or would like to embrace. It is what's called the normative world order, uh, which means that for, frankly, for the first time in history, in human history, uh, might does not make right in all instances, that there are not simply spheres of influence where power for a state or states coalition thereof um, is projected to impose its will, where in the ideal at least, and sometimes frequently in fact, um, the norms, the laws, the rule-based practices with regard to trade, um, intellectual property, uh, use of power, uh, are regulated by agreed-upon norms in which Andorra or Liechtenstein, a country of 60,000 people, I think it's 20,000 people, um, has as much right in the forum of uh, arbitration on a given issue uh, as the United States controlling 50% of the GDP. Now, the cynics, communists, Marxists, um, realpolitik people will say, well, that's all a lot of talk to, to mask actually the American Imperium. There is truth to that criticism on a critical point, but a distinction needs to be made. When the United States or any power perceives its vital national interests to be at play, of course, that country, the United States or any other country, invariably uh, pursues its national interest. Now, a country can misunderstand uh, what its national interests are, get them wrong, disagree about what they are. Uh, but on vital national interests, it's true, power continues to define uh, policy in the international context. <clears throat> However, on issues that are not existential or perceived as such uh, in the normative international order, the rules have progressively obtained so that uh, France, for example, can decide it no longer wants American soldiers on its soil. And the United States agrees and withdraws its soldiers. On trade disputes, now this regime extends to all walks of human and state uh, behavior, economic, social, intellectual, political, military. Uh, on, an, on a trade dispute, if the United States is found by the relevant bodies that are created to arbitrate trade, the World Trade Organization today and uh, the IMF and so on, um, to have been in the wrong, if the vital interest is not perceived by the United States, the United States has, in most instances, acquiesced to the, the decisions. What have been the consequences of this? Now, now, why is this possible? A cardinal principle in international relations and in the organization of any state is that the state has the monopoly, legitimate, the monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Thus, we have a police force. We have a military. No one has a right to use force to impose his will or even to defend, except in certain extreme circumstances, his, uh, his rights. One appeals to the state. That's the foundation almost of an organized society and a state, which is why America has its own crisis with gun, guns, but that's a separate issue not related to the international order. So this is the fundamental problem in any international system. 
who imposes the will of the body? Who, who enforces the rules? The United Nations as a tool uh, alluded to is theoretically, uh, formally the only recognized power. It is the embryo of a world government. However, uh, and it also has the legal monopoly on the legitimate use of force, but the way it is structured, the it being the United Nations, and thus the world system legally, uh, has the Security Council where uh, each of the five permanent members has a veto on policy. And that paralyzes the system so that there is no, in, in most instances for 75 years, there has uh, only rarely been on vital issues of life and death, war and peace, uh, uh, agreement among the great powers because the Soviet Union, China, the United States, France and England, those two blocks basically have been and are at odds on fundamental issues. Thus, the institution is paralyzed, and thus the only power that has been able to project global force, really, uh, for 75 years, has been the United States, which, of course, exasperated. If, if I may interject, the Soviets did that, too, during the Cold War. In fact, the Cold War was a series of proxy yes. wars across the world. That's so true. The U, but the U.S. has been top dog. That's and, right. And, and let's go back to the to the post-war order. So, so the important thing uh, here uh, for people to know is that the post-war order was indeed uh, uh, in the aftermath of World War II an idealistic uh, uh, attempt by America. America had come up with the Atlantic Declaration as well. But soon after the Cold, uh, the the, the uh, World War, sorry, uh, soon after World War II. The Cold War emerged and institutions uh, started getting paralyzed and even atrophying. Uh, the United Nations, uh, who is it accountable to? Well, the answer is today no one. It has, uh, yes, it does some good work, but there's a lot of waste and frankly corruption, and not to talk of inefficiency. And uh, what can it do? And yeah, it does some work in refugees. Uh, UNICEF has done some work, um, World Heritage Sites as well, but. Uh, it's also true that what can it really do? And the answer is not much. And so if you look at the institutions, they have been um, chipped away over time. The IMF has its issues. The IMF's policies have been counterproductive to many economies. Its role in 1997 scarred Asia. Uh, the great Lee Kuan Yew, one of the great minds <laughs> of the 20th century, one of the greatest leaders um, probably... Uh, of of all time and certainly of modern times, in fact, uh, lambasted the IMF and said it had uh, completed, uh, completely destroyed the social fabric even of Indonesia. So the IMF uh, doesn't have that much credit left. The World Bank has its issues because many of the developmental projects it has pushed have not exactly led to better human welfare and they've caused massive environmental damage. Also, the cushy bureaucracies in both these organizations where uh, a lot of people go in for tax-free salaries and, and uh, jaunts across many countries mean that there's a lack of faith and credibility. So the institutions have suffered. In particular, uh, the U.S. has particularly under Republican administrations undermined these institutions. Uh, signing the Kyoto Treaty and withdrawing wasn't great. Signing uh, the Paris Accord and then withdrawing wasn't great. 
going to war in Iraq, one of the great historic blunders that happened 20 years ago. And of course, Glenn was particularly involved in the war on terror. He made his name opposing torture uh, in during the war on terror. And he thinks it's a distraction. I'll let you crack on in a second on it. And many others uh, who, who disagreed with that, uh, that sort of uh, undermining of international norms and international institutions by the U.S. itself, uh, you know, didn't help the post-war order. And even when it came, comes to trade, the U.S. has not allowed the uh, appointment of appellate judges, which means that even the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the successor to GATT and GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, is also hobbling along. So given uh, all these developments, the post-war order, which uh, promised a lot, um, is suffering in the same way as, say, um, institutions in democracy. They've become sclerotic. They've become dysfunctional. They've disintegrated in some ways into interest groups and, uh, and uh, uh, sclerosis. And that uh, has allowed... Uh, the opportunity for a rising power like China to to uh, mount a challenge. Well, I, I think it would have happened independent of these things. But uh, two points, and then uh, we'll carry on to the to the rising China um, issue, which is defining for our century. <clears throat> um, everything that you said is true. Uh, this is where. Uh, critics of uh, the ostensible normative world order or the Pax Americana um, uh, reside. And, and for them, that these are the defining realities of what is a hypocritical uh, series of uh, rationalizations for the projection of American power. Uh, I think that's wrong. It's a fundamental issue where to decide, for a person needs to decide. That these are the blemishes, all of which are real, of the ideal. But I think when one looks, at, frankly, at the larger um, uh, perspective of have the rules haltingly but progressively applied uh, or obtained since 1945 in trade, in politics, um, in uh, intellectual property, in health pra uh, policies and so on, the answer is uh, yes, that the, the, the underlying reality, imperfect as it is, has shown unique in human experience uh, level of uh, progress and concord. You look at the level of, um, and, and this is because science is disseminated in education, but why has rational decision-making uh, expanded and obtained in ever larger areas of human activity? And, and I would argue because of the imperfect, but uh, consistently uh, idealistic, at least, um, uh, and aspiration point of the, the system so that uh, health care, uh, uh, infant mortality is down, uh, global wealth per capita is dramatically up over the period of 75 years. Globally, we're talking about violence is down, the incidents of wars are down. Now, parts of that, part of that is because you don't have great power conflicts as much as you have historically and because colonialism uh, has finally uh, run its course. Uh, but part of it also is because uh, there has been uh, accepted or imposed a, uh, a higher uh, rate of accepting uh, arbitration as opposed to the use of force. Uh, so that's what the normative order 
is supposed to have been and uh, imperfectly but uh, but more than any other time in human history has been that's also the order that really doesn't uh, exist so in a global way now um as it did 25 years ago during the unipolar american moment when america had no no relevant uh, the, rival the at argument all. is that uh, in some ways 2003 and the invasion of iraq in particular chipped away at that order because it wasn't done as per the United Nations uh, uh, procedures and it was in basically a contravention of international law. Yeah, yes, but I, I think that um, you can find many reasons to um, many faults in American policies, but I yeah. think that we are secondary to the to the larger story here, which is the rise of China, which yeah. has happened because of their intrinsic Absolutely. actions merits and decisions independent of anything the u.s has done i was part part of um, because i was in the government um heated debates about well what should the united states do about the rise of china and this is before china exploded in success mm -hmm. in the last 20 years this is just as that was really beginning in say what the year 2000 are you talking about so 2000 2007 is, I see. Um, so, so about, by this time china had been admitted into the World Trade Organization yes. that happened actually in 2001, <clears throat> the same year as 9-11. Yeah. So 2001, most um, people just remember it for 9-11, but it was a consequential year to steal your words yeah. um, because <laughs> two things happened. Uh, one, right. of course, 9-11, and then, of course, China entered the WTO. And so the debate was, as always in the U.S., between the conservatives, isolationists, and the internationalist uh, Democrats. The simple, that's simplistic, but, but broadly correct. Yeah. And uh, the Republicans um, argued, well, we have to keep China from rising. Uh, they wouldn't say, some wouldn't say this you know, in the open, some would, mm -hmm. but, but that was the, the but, feeling, but certainly the neoconservatives. George Bush Sr. was a Republican. He didn't belong to that school. No, he's an old so, Republican, a Republican yeah. as they existed when my father was a Republican. Uh, the, so this the was the new Republicans. So we should make the that distinction because, because after all, Nixon went to China. He was Republican. And then George Bush Sr. was ambassador yeah. in Beijing. And of course, uh, George Bush Sr. was also very engaged with China. So we should make that distinction. Yes, uh, the Republican Party, as it came to be controlled by the uh, Newt Gingrich neoconservatives from the early 1990s, certainly. I mean, I, I would ar argue that it was earlier and the strain has existed throughout American history of isolationism and unilateralism, but but okay. But certainly from the 1990s, the Republicans changed in, in their nature. And they they their position was, well, it's foolish to allow a country to become a global power that can threaten the United States, so we have to keep China from rising. Mm -hmm. They lost the argument, and they would have lost the effort in any any event. That's sort of like fighting a t the tide, frankly. The other, fact, other side of the debate was, well, we have to help China um, uh, open, and in so doing, it will be in the u.s national interest too to have uh, a country that shares the the norms that i described and contributes its own expertise and brilliance in every domain this is this is uh, for the greater good of everybody and of course uh, let's not forget that it was in the interest of american ceos to push manufacturing to china because if you're walmart and you source sure. from china that means you can get things cheaper and if you get things cheaper and you sell to your customers here, uh, you get a higher profit. And if you get a higher profit, that means you're uh, 
share prices rise and your bonuses rise, your CEOs are happy, your shareholders are happy, your owners are happy. So it was in the interest of American business to, frankly, um, ship factories to China. So uh, right. there were winners. Of course, there were losers too, but there were winners in America from welcoming China into the fold. Oh, the greatest good for the greater number, the you know the capitalist uh, laissez-faire perspective is that yeah. this is the the way to go. And uh, conflicting with that is the other conservative argument, which is the one that I touched upon, which is that well we can't have a rival uh, threaten us, and so we have to keep them down. But that that was a fool. No, I mean there was also the argument Ross Perot made, and he foreshadowed people people like Donald Trump when he said there's a giant sucking sound. Mm -hmm. And he talked about jobs going to Mexico, but there were people who were warning about jobs going to China. So these arguments and these uh, fears have been lurking in the American bosom for a while. Absolutely. So that was the normative order. And the U.S. could impose is a little too strong a word because uh, powerful as the United States has been since 1945. As it's easy to find an infinite number of examples in which the American will was frustrated and, and you can't get people to do what they don't want to do, as we found in uh, Vietnam or uh, Iraq uh, or Afghanistan, or uh, you just choose the subject. What changed? Well, the change really is is one global historic uh, event, and that that is the rise of China. Um, Especially since the year 2007 or 8, the, the trends of uh, development are shocking from that period on. When I was still working, China was a global player, factor, but was not a peer, uh, a rival, or a superior to the United States in almost any domain whatsoever. You can just look at military spending, and military spending is, to a large extent, a function of economic strength. Um, China's defense budget was something to the order of 120th that of the United States in the year 2007. Uh, today, it's about a third or 40 percent, but it has increased 10 or 20 fold. Uh, in 1995, an example that Tool and I have used many times during a crisis over Taiwan, President Clinton sailed two aircraft carriers in the Taiwan Straits between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan, and the Chinese could do nothing but rage. Uh, and they remember. Uh, <laughs> they don't forget. They, they don't they, forget. They've not for, they've um, not forgotten the, the the sack of Beijing. You're right. To, today, <laughs> by Lord Elgin the <laughs> Second. Today, today, in the 19th century, <laughs> um, the Chinese Navy is in absolute numbers larger than that of the United States. It is building ships at a much faster rate. It has the United States has seven naval facilities that are um, capable of building uh, warships, and they are. Uh, the Chinese have something like twenty-two, a number that is increasing. Their ships are um, at the highest end, not yet equivalent technologically or in capability, uh, force projection power, uh, not quite equivalent, not equivalent yet to those of the United States. But the Chinese are are, are smart, and you choose the fight that you sh that you can win, uh, and you avoid the fight that that is uh, a loser. So rather than try to compete with the United States in building aircraft carriers, the the central uh, element for force projection of the United States military, they have developed um, carrier killer, as they call them, uh, missiles for one thousandth the cost, literally 
of an, an aircraft carrier. So they can build a thousand of them and only one of them has to succeed. And then the cost is lower uh, than building an aircraft carrier. The consequence of these changes uh, is that the U.S. aircraft carriers now, American force projection at a time of crisis with China, and there are many now, uh, will not operate within 1,500 kilometers of the Chinese coast. That's a different world than it was 15 years ago. And that those trends continue. Why? Because China's economic growth has been, as we all know, one of the great human events in human history uh, in the last 40 years. The growth rates have been 8%, 9%. Pardon and me. they've been sustained year on year. Year on year. Yeah. So, so that so, the, so, the Chinese economy, which was 120th that of the United States 20 years ago, today is roughly equivalent, uh, equal to it. That's changed the purchasing power parity, though. Not yet. I'm sorry? In, in PPP terms, purchasing power parity, not exactly in, in absolute numbers and no. not yet. And a long it, way it, to go when it comes to per capita income. I think it's one fourth or one fifth per capita of the United States, but the Chinese population is four times that of the United States. True. So it comes out roughly the same. Uh, this, this is a genie that is not going back into any bottle. I mean, this is the reality. So what has uh, that and, meant? Uh, just before we crack on, and uh, that genie is out of the bottle, and that genie uh, is also perhaps uh, uh, operating in a world where Russia has now invaded Ukraine, shattering the peace in Europe um, after 1945. Last year, February 24, 2022, um, everything changed in terms of the post-war order. The rules-based order that we talk about, and that even despite Iraq, had largely kept peace between different states. Yes, Sudan had imploded. Yes, Armenia and Azerbaijan had gone to blows over Nagorno-Karabakh. Yes, mm -hmm. India and Pakistan had fought uh, many wars uh, and a brief war in 1998. Yes, there have been interstate tensions, but there wasn't a big power in open battle using tanks and marching into enemy territory. And that has definitive, definitively changed. And uh, that post-war order, um, which had its problems, is, is now basically over. We are back to the era of war. And China, a rising China, is now operating in that new era of war. Right. So why... The, the main factor in the change is that the U.S. is no longer 50% of the global GDP. It's about 22 which is still immense, Huge. Huge. Um, uh, but China is no longer 0 0.01 or whatever it was, you know, in, inconsequential. It's probably 15 or 19 percent of global GNP and continuing to rise. So the U.S. can no longer impose uh, its will or any order that it seeks to impose uh, unilaterally. Not that it ever could actually impose unilaterally, but but I think the point's taken. Yeah, but China. China uh, can now assert its own uh, own uh, interests and own views. So what does China, what do many people uh, think about this, quote, normative order? Well, I've spent my life, you know, having a critique to me and, and derided as as um, hypocritical um, or delusional. Um, and there is some truth to, to both uh, critiques, but fundamentally, you know, my position, which is that it's not fundamentally uh, delusional. However, from the Chinese perspective, which is critical in, in the world we're living in today, um, a lot of this is rationalization for Western 
um, continued uh, uh, domination, domination, domination uh, and uh, and racial in uh, in the domination of the of the white European. Uh, and therefore, um, it's by definition uh, probably to be opposed because it's a euphemism, or no, no, not euphemism, a um, a mask for uh, the vestiges or continuation of an unjust uh, system. And a tool you you alluded to the sacking of the you know the Forbidden Palace in in uh, what year was that? It was eighteen ninety eight or something? Or I forget. Or is it before? Um, in any event, in recent memory, the memory of my great grandfather, I think, and the Chinese say never again, we will not suffer a century of humiliation ever again. We are a sovereign state. We're proud people. We are at least the equals of anybody else. And so the, enough of that. And we, as we grow in power, uh, wish to have our views expressed also. The world order, such as it has been, the IMF, uh, for example, uh, it has been designed uh, to the detriment of everyone except for the rich white guys from Europe and the United States, uh, in particular from Washington. And so we don't accept this. Point one, point, or point one is the rise of Chinese power. Point two is the rejection of the norms as hypocritical and not acceptable any longer. Point three is, well, what do we Chinese seek? You know, I'll get to that, but I, you want to say something? Too, sorry. No, not at all. Uh, what I was, uh, please finish that. I, I was about to say that the okay. sacking happened in 1860 during the Second it's, Opium uh, War, okay. uh, a little earlier than you said. And yeah. uh, it, it was Lord Elgin, whose father, of course, Lord Elgin I, brought back the Elgin marbles from the then Ottoman Empire, which are proudly displayed in the British Museum. So like father, like son, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And uh, he ordered the destruction of the old summer palace. It was a warning to the Qing Empire. Um, basically, um, it, it was horrific. The, 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 the um, amount of artwork lost, the amount of vandalism. It was almost like Genghis Khan. And that has scarred uh, the, the, um, the Chinese mind to this date. And of course, there were very interesting people in that uh, sack um, of the old summer palace. There was Charles George Gordon, who would die in Khartoum. Who was Chinese Gordon 20... was his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a 27-year-old captain in the Royal Engineers. And yeah. uh, he, he, uh, one of the things he wrote was that uh, we went out uh, after pillaging it, burned the whole palace, the whole place, sorry, destroying it in a vandal-like manner, most valuable property. Yeah. which could more, could not be replaced for four millions. So we got upwards of pounds uh, uh, 48 apiece prize money. I've done well, what, well. And happily, un unhappily, we don't need to go back to 1860. You know, my, my wife is, uh, is Chinese. Yes, and, of course. <laughs> uh, she's from Hong Kong. And she points out to me, um, so that I had not become too arrogant a, a guaylo uh, wasp um, by default, um, that in her, in our lifetimes, in Hong Kong, Chinese were not allowed to go up to the peak, to the most uh, prestigious, Absolutely. wealthiest part yeah. of uh, of Hong Kong. This is in our lifetimes, uh, something we should keep in mind, uh, yeah. which understandably would shape the perspective of someone who had to uh, respond to that uh, kind of racism and injustice. There's so, one little nugget which I'll mention, we'll move on to the next question. Yeah is that uh, the British used Indian troops 
And the Chinese have never forgotten that. And the Chinese, therefore, look upon Indians as lackeys of the West who have been hired guns for the West. And a lot of soldiers uh, were Sikh. The British used Sikh policemen in places like uh, Singapore and China who were tall. And Hong Kong. Yes, uh, uh, and My. ferocious, and uh, and the Chinese uh, to this day, I'm told, have, have a little bit. The troops, at least, have a little bit of a fear of Sikh troops. My, my mother-in-law, deep and historic, often speaks of the uh, Sikh soldiers that uh, she knew day, routinely, daily, uh, growing up in in Hong Kong uh, prior to World War Two. Uh, she has remarkable tales, but that, but that's maybe another for time. Another, podcast. another time for Chinese tales. So, maybe another time. Maybe we'll have her in the podcast. So it would we, be fascinating. We've touched upon. We've touched upon um, uh, the uh, post-war order. We've touched upon how that has uh, come under threat uh, due to many actions, due to sclerosis of institutions themselves, uh, due to um, the Iraq War due to the rise of China and, of course, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So in this new world of war, what is the new world order that China is championing? You know, it, it, well, in a way, it's a return to the world prior to 1945. Uh, it's the way things have always been. Uh, it's, it, I would argue it's Chinese successes more than American miscues or errors mm -hmm. that have led to the, to the new world. China's rise, given any, any opportunity, is, is, has been inevitable. And China for millennia, literally, has been the most powerful uh, middle kingdom, the, the center of global trade and uh, scientific advancement and so on. Uh, so in a way, this is a return to the world as it has always been. But what does China seek? One, uh, as, I, as I've said, or we said, to eliminate the vestiges of what it, con it considers uh, an unjust uh, neo-imperial uh, system that doesn't, uh, that unfairly benefits Washington in particular. Uh, but two, uh, Totally understandably, they wish to project, have their own views taken into account, uh, if not always listened to uh, or adhered to. Uh, and so they are projecting power. I said in an earlier talk uh, elsewhere a couple of days ago, the, the traditional expression is that uh, trade follows the flag. And, and I think that's in reverse. That's the imperial uh, framework from the 19th century. Actually, uh, the flag follows trade meaning that economic power defines political power. And as China's become a global, one of two global or three with Europe, um, economic powers, so its political influence has risen. China seeks a different kind of international order. It does, it does more than pay lip service to the, to the norms uh, that regulate trade with regard to uh, economics and trade. Uh, however, the Chinese model uh, is a reversion uh, to it, the historic Chinese model, which is that China uh, reaches bilateral agreements with almost by definition inferior powers because China is larger than anybody else. And, and so they, they will have sell themselves the middle kingdom, the middle kingdom. So they will reach a trade agreement with the Philippines and, and the Philippines can benefit uh, so long as they, they um, pay obeisance to the center and the deciding element uh, in the in the uh, drama, which is Beijing. Yeah. So it is a 
they seek basically to it's their their Jonggu again. They are the Middle Kingdom again. Yes. And just yes. as uh, back in the day, everyone had to come and pay tribute to to the um, to the uh, emperor. <laughs> it's absolutely the same. <laughs> they they have to now come and and uh, pay obeisance to Emperor Xi Jinping, who can be benevolent and you can benefit, but China is the center of the world, uh, that, and that's it. and that perhaps you know is is the Chinese way. They they're also looking at a world uh, which is um, uh, through the lens of spheres of influence. They do not see that's uh, it. Yeah, you know, they do not see the universal. Um, uh, post-war global order as in their interest. They think the rules of the game are rigged. Uh, in any case, they were written by the victors of World War II. They were written by those who were racist, those who smashed the old summer palace, those who basically uh, do not have China's best interests at heart. And ipso facto, uh, this post-war order um, has to be subverted and, and then confronted. I mean, the Chinese have, over a period of time, infiltrated all sorts of bodies, whether it is uh, the World Health Organization, whether it is the United Nations, uh, whether it is uh, uh, even uh, uh, even uh, many Western universities. So the Chinese uh, have followed a policy of uh, subverting this order as they as they felt stronger. And now, of course, I suppose they are confronting it. Right. So they'd say that there are no universal norms. In fact, uh, there are projections of uh, power, influence and interest. And so uh, in the South China Sea, uh, this talk about uh, international law is a mask for American uh, aircraft carriers to continue to uh, decide uh, issues of war and peace in the South China Sea. Whereas we Chinese are happy to uh, negotiate, of course, uh, an agreement with the Philippines uh, and with Vietnam and with Brunei uh, and with Malaysia uh, and Japan uh, and Korea uh, separately, uh, which will be for everyone's benefit. And as Atul said, they can they will benefit. Uh, but uh, the elephant uh, negotiating with the mouse is uh, China and every other state almost inevitably because of the size dispar uh, disparities uh, will be the most and china will therefore be the premier into paris and, and will make fundamentally the decisions at the same time a, a, a concomitant uh, objective is to remove uh, america's uh, influence from the western and south pacific so that china becomes the arbiter of of um, international relations uh, in all its forms uh, there at the very least. So these are, it's a sphere of influence and a projection of power, a bi series of bilateral agreements in pursuit of national interest, as opposed to an, a system where there are norms imperfectly um, uh, uh, moved towards, but that are accepted as defining the ideal and, and with a, a um, international arbiter of some sort. And that's the world that China seeks. The Ukraine invasion that you touched upon, Atul, has been uh, sort of a hammer blow that is, has uh, broken or something that has catalyzed, perhaps that's a, that's a, that's a better way to put it, um, these changes so that you, you now very quickly, have, have, in the last 12 months, uh, the issues have been largely resolved about what kind of world we will live in. And you have the normative uh, 
uh, aspirational order of the United States and most of the wealthy states, um, something that uh, the global South countries um, would like to have as the case, but but they will pursue their own interests and they can get a better specific deal from uh, someone else, meaning China, uh, they will pursue it. Um, we, we'll touch have... upon that later. So there are a couple okay. of uh, points I want to bring uh, bring to the table here. Uh, and one is, uh, you mentioned the, the catalyst, which is the uh, Russia-Ukraine war that uh, has changed the world. Uh, after that, last year, we covered it, and uh, a lot of people didn't fully examine uh, the consequences of China going to the Solomon Islands. Uh, you can mm -hmm. speak about that in a second. Uh, I, I think the, more, the two more recent developments uh, that have been extremely significant one, of course, uh, is China brokering a Saudi-Iran deal, which is historic. Uh, this is the historic Shia-Sunni divide, Sunni-Shia yes. divide. Um, this is two powers at loggerheads for regional and, in fact, um, uh, global supremacy in the Islamic world. Um, and Xi Jinping, Emperor Xi Jinping, visiting the Tsar in, in, uh, in Moscow, Tsar um, Vladimir Putin, this phenomenal uh, visit, which of course hasn't yet resulted in anything concrete, but the symbolic uh, uh, nature of the visit, the significance of the visit is phenomenal. So in this new world order, China is starting to muscle into territory. It has not gone before. Well, I would say more than starting. This is the reality, yes. Yeah, so we've seen it, uh, the Saudi... No, no, no. The Chinese. Let's begin with the Solomon Islands, and because okay. most people uh, don't so, know enough. Since 1945, you, you were. You, I mean, you, you have passed it out in detail before. Yeah, the, in 19 since 1945, the United States Navy, the United States has been. Um, the Pacific has been an American lake. That's the way the Americans put it, uh, and without any real uh, challenge, at all. Um, a year? No, no. Uh, yes, one year ago. The, the Chinese uh, out of nowhere will pop up with this um, security agreement with the government of the Solomon Islands, which allows potentially... And they are Pacific Islands, just so that our listeners know. You can look them on the map. Mm. They're in the Pacific. They're strategically important. They're Southwest close... Pacific. It yes, can, they're it, close which to Australia. They control trade routes to between uh, the Eurasian landmass, uh, India, and uh, Japan with Australia. So they're they're strategically important in a geographical sense. Um, but even more important than that, I would say, is simply a security agreement that allows for the potential of a Chinese naval base in the South Pacific. It's the first time since 1945 uh, that uh, the United States supremacy has not just been challenged, but, but breached. Uh, when you consider at the same time that, as I mentioned, the U.S. force projection now um, stays 1,500 kilometers away from the Chinese coast. Just those two facts alone describe a radically different world for uh, the South Pacific and the Indo-Pacific than has been the case since 1945. The peace agreement in um, the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran, brokered by China, is again, really fundamentally, I think, the first a geostrategic player to have uh, make made a consequential uh, 
event um, in the Middle East, also since 1945. Now, you could argue that the Russians' involvement in Syria in, since 2015 was significant, and there have been signs of a crumbling American hegemony uh, and flagging American interest or need to be interested in the Middle East. But but this agreement is the first really geostrategically consequential uh, decision made by China, by anybody else than the United States in the Middle East, also since 1945. Then you have the invasion of Just very Ukraine. quickly, let's yeah. go back to the Saudi-Iran thing, because I yeah. think most uh, listeners don't understand how historic this is. Um, it, it is, again, an example of what Glenn calls... Uh, the flag-following trade. The biggest importer of Saudi oil is now China. In 1945, on Valentine's Day, no less, um, on 14th of February, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Ibn, King Ibn Saud had a deal. And the deal was the Americans would guarantee the House of Saud on the throne. And, of course, the House of Saud guaranteed a supply of oil to America. Uh, this was... And the agreement was, uh, was made on a U.S. cruiser built maybe 25 kilometers from where I'm sitting now. <laughs> but that shipyard was it USS closed. Enterprise? Was it USS I think Enterprise? It was the Quin- I think it was the Quincy. I, uh, I see. Uh, I'm not I sure. See. I forget. In any I event, um, it was made in the city of Quincy. So I'm probably I'm wrong on the, on the name of the ship. But it was only 25 kilometers away. A sign of American decline is that shipyard doesn't make Navy ships anymore. Wow, that is, uh, I didn't know the, it was USS Quincy, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Actually, I, I, you can read more about it in my article, and I had mentioned USS Quincy, but it had obviously slipped my mind, and, and uh, Glenn remem- remembers it. So that deal stood for decades, but in recent years, America has become energy independent. So how much oil, Saudi oil, does America import? Perhaps not very much. Um, how much oil does China import? a lot. Uh, There have also been tensions, uh, especially after Mohammed bin Salman chopped up a journalist um, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, the the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in a spectacularly brutal and medieval manner, um, basically made Americans aghast. And Joe Biden promised to make, US President Joe Biden promised to make uh, uh, Saudi Arabia pariah state. And All of these tensions, uh, combined, of course, with Saudi apprehensions that U.S. President Barack Obama, through uh, the reigning dictators and monarchs of the Middle East to the dogs by being warm to the Arab uprisings, has meant that Saudis have both economically and ideologically drifted further and further away. And the U.S. US... the U.S. has drifted further away because why should Americans die to protect Saudi? um, sheiks. Yeah, Saudi sheiks uh, with their yachts and their cocaine <laughs> and their uh, prostitutes in Paris. And so the point is that uh, Sa- the Americans have drifted away, the Saudis have drifted away, and the Saudis find that the deal that they struck with America in 1945, the wonderful Valentine's Day deal, no longer holds. Uh, they have uh, both fallen out of love with each other. So enter the dragon. They are in love with a new dragon who's buying oil, who provides them technology, who provides investment, who will provide them um, uh, the means to shift to a cleaner, greener future when they run out of oil. And uh, the Saudis now are 
closer and closer to the Chinese. And the Iranians, of course, in some ways, are propped up by the Chinese. Uh, China is one of their big supporters. Um, and so the two countries, because they are so dependent on China, uh, basically make peace, or not exactly peace, they'll never make peace, but they were willing to shake hands because the class teacher told the two errant students that, look, you've had a fight, now shake hands and go and sit uh, back in your respective corners. And this is enormously significant because the US managed to get both Iran and Saudi Arabia playing on the same team before 1979. That was when the Shah of Iran was in charge and the House of Saud was in, was in charge. And in 1979, two things happened in that region. One was, of course, the tiny little matter of the revolution, which brought back uh, Ayatollah, or which brought Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini in charge in Tehran, and has given us this regime of mullahs that persists to the day. And in 1979, the Grand Mosque of Mecca, and most people forget it, was stormed by extremists, by mm -hmm. fundamentalists, and a certain... Um, Osama bin Laden was very impressed and even inspired by that event. Uh, yes, the Saudis managed to beat off this challenge, but the House of Saud after that promoted Wahhabi Islam all across the world and gave uh, places like Bosnia and even very tolerant, eclectic uh, Indonesia, an mm -hmm. intolerant and virulent form of Islam that has been a problem that has defined Glenn's career, but we'll not go into it. And so this clash of a Wahhabi Islam promoting country and a millenarian Shia Mullah-led country uh, continued for decades. And, and to get these two powers to shake hands is extraordinarily historically important. So part of the reason that China could play this role and succeed is the important one that you touched upon that we've talked talked about, which is um, the flag follows trade, influence follows trade relations. That that we've said we haven't mentioned enough. Pardon me. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the other components of great appeal to quote the global south unquote countries, which is that the United States has this normative ideal and says, sure, we'd love to sell you cars or whatever it is we want to sell or software. I don't know movies, um, but of course. You have to respect the rights of women. You have to do this. You have to have labor laws. There are a whole, a whole series of normative obligations uh, that the United States and the, the West in this system seek to, uh, most would say impose, but uh, to foster at the very least. This is intrusive in the, in the uh, affairs of uh, sovereign states. It, it is telling leaders, many of whom are autocrats and don't uh, want to have other power centers rivaling their decision-making uh, power in their own countries, uh, it, it makes them uh, uneasy because it threatens them. The Chinese and the Russians say, we have goods to offer you. We have security that we can, uh, can uh, help um, uh, guarantee for you. Uh, all you have to do is, is pay for the things and make a deal. And we have nothing to say about the domestic affairs of your state. We like state sovereignty, and we we find these norms to be intrusive and imperialistic and uh, none of our business. But that's very appealing to Saudi Arabia or to any other country from the global south, who many of its people and even its uh, economic actors 
would see your aspire to the benefits of a normative system. But uh, the autocrats who make the decision and don't want rival power centers uh, want to have nothing to do with it. And so the appeal of a, uh, a risen and continuing to rise China uh, offering um, economic benefit and progressively security uh, assistance uh, without the strings and conditions that the United States and the West seek to uh, impose uh, is very powerful. And that's a factor also in why China is becoming a global player, uh, not only because of its economic rise. So there's one thing I'll add to it, and then we'll move on to Xi's visit to Moscow, which is also extremely significant. And I think Glenn's right, uh, the the... the preaching that America does, as many of its enemies and many other countries point out, doesn't work. In fact, they probably are playing Madonna, Papa, don't preach, uh, <laughs> and running off to China. But the important thing is uh, there is also the matter of inconsistency in American policies, politics and policies. So Obama signed a deal with Iran. There was an Iran deal, and he tried to reorient American position away from the Sunni world to a more balanced position wherein America would sort of be uh, neutral between the Shia Sunni world. Uh, historically, America is seen as pro-Sunni because of its deal with Saudi Arabia in 1945 and anti-Shia, especially after the 1979 Iranian revolution. Obama decided, well, let's make a deal with Iran and stop them becoming nuclear. And it tilts us away from our perceived bias towards the Sunni world. But the moment Donald Trump got elected, the moment Trump got elected, that deal was out of the window and uh, Biden's re-election hasn't been able to revive the deal. So for a country like Iran and for many other countries, uh, the question is, can you even rely on America? You sign a deal, you agree upon a deal, but that deal is not even worth the paper it's signed on uh, come the next election. And this has also hurt... Uh, uh, American dominance and allowed uh, a chance for China to creep in. So, you know, that is a factor to consider. And, and now we, we, we will very quickly touch upon Xi's visit to, to Moscow and then move on to the third part of our podcast. Well, the, the, the trip to, to Moscow by Xi, I think, was a very um, astute and successful uh, diplomatic uh, gambit uh, by the Chinese. They want to, they have stated that they are a close ally of Russia. Why? Because it's clearly in opposition to uh, what they view as American uh, imperialism or the American system. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese are both uh, advocates of and practitioners of the sphere of influence, um, recognized state sovereignty um, school of international relations. This is the world that they want to create. Russia wants to recreate. Yeah, Russia has changed. During the time of the Soviet Union, it was also a universalist power seeking to establish communism globally. But right. since 1991, uh, that old God has failed and Russia has gone back to the czarist default setting. Perhaps you can argue it's always had and Vladimir Putin is nothing but a modern-day Tsar. Right, yes. I th think that's an important uh, nuance to, to add. And, and we have a long article, and we have a podcast on this as well, which examines Vladimir Putin's uh, 
driving influences and his long game, the long game that he's playing. So you can read that and you can listen to it um, separately. So she goes because he wants to bolster uh, Russia. Uh, it's a, it's a, a statement of support for this this international system of sphere of influence that uh, the Chinese are creating or propound, uh, as well as Russia. It's a way to uh, help uh, Russia in a moment of difficulty because things are not going well for Russia. Uh, it, one should note that uh, she has not, um, there wasn't a lot of concrete aid because the Chinese interest is uh, really more to uh, embroil America in a headache and protect, help aid Russia rather than to um, so aid Russia that it incurs the wrath and consequences uh, in reaction by the United States. They don't want to lose their economic benefits of international trade uh, or politically be aligned too uh, uh, rigorously to a country that has um, invaded another, uh, which is uh, against one of the cardinal principles of uh, Chinese foreign policy at least formally stated. At the same time, it puts the United States on and Ukraine and, and NATO, really, a bit on the defensive, because now there is a peace proposal that she has made. Now, it's a phony one. Uh, it's self-serving. It's, it's, uh, it serves only Russian interests. But those are all secondary things, because as my father always pointed out, who was involved in politics, in politics, if you explain, you lose. Uh, you simply assert Never uh, explain. Your friends don't need it, and your enemies won't believe you that's, anyway. That's very well said. <laughs> that's it. So they've put out a peace plan. They can now say, "Look, we have a peace plan." And why are you? You're objecting to our to peace, and so you are in the wrong. That's as far as the the analysis will go for almost anybody. Um, so this has been a uh, quite successful uh, uh, step. Um, also showing that the uh, the world really now has uh, fallen into uh, two and a half uh, different systems where the the normative system no longer is it's just outright rejected um, by two principal countries really there are only two or three others that will align with it but nonetheless uh, one of them is one of the two most powerful countries in the world and the other has the largest nuclear uh, arsenal in the world uh, so that's that's why she went to China, and it was quite successful, really. It, it won't bring peace, but uh, it it gums up the works of, uh, diplomatically, a bit of the Ukrainian supporting coalition. All right. So the New World Order that China is championing is a spheres of influence order. It is an order where Emperor Xi Jinping will be at the center and others will kowtow to him. It is an order where China will act uh, as peacemaker um, and uh, bring together warring countries such as Saudi Arabia and Iran and Russia and Ukraine. And this order will be very different as they claim to the uh, American wartime order, as they call it, which has led to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, military misadventures, 800 bases. Um, a huge arms uh, and and defense industry and fundamentally uh, moralizing, hectoring world policeman rule uh, that uh, is not exactly in global interest. That is fundamentally the Chinese position. 
And um, this brings us on to to the third part of the podcast. And, and we are going to answer the question, what are the implications of this uh, new world order for the US, for China itself, for Europe, for major powers like Japan and India, and for the so-called global south? Well, I would argue long-term, uh, everyone is going to be a loser uh, because I think the normative system is demonstrably, uh, it's it's demonstrable empirically that it leads to uh, um, higher rates of growth um, and uh, lower levels of uh, violent conflict uh, than unless, any, any time uh, in human history. And less bloodshed, <laughs> arguably. If everyone's in the club, less bloodshed, yes. they, they, yeah. they, they are, to use Lyndon B. Johnson's words, they are pissing inside the tent outside yeah. instead of outside it. And they can have their powwows and disagree and abuse each other, but they can go back and 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 maybe get something. Maybe they'll not get hundred percent of what they want, but maybe the major power will get eighty percent, the minor power gets twenty percent. But you have some form of yeah. a win-win. Uh, but now, of course, we are seeing defense expenditure rise. Japan has doubled its defense budget. Uh, we 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 are seeing. European countries increase their defense expenditure, and, which means there that will, will be, be less money. There will be going forward. Healthcare. There will be less money for schools and so yeah, on and well, so forth. So, so in the long term, I think this is all to the detriment, really, of everybody from Beijing to Washington and everywhere between. I think medium term and short term, certainly, but even medium term. And what is medium term? It's a, it's a decade, fifteen years. It's a fuzzy period. Um, I mean, you, you were the deputy national intelligence officer, not me. So you define well, we, it. We always use fuzzy terms and then refuse to define them. <laughs> you're very, you're being very Indian. You're, you're being almost like a good, uh, good uh, Brahmin priest in Varanasi, this is the great my ancestral city. <laughs> this is the great frustration of policymakers is that they will ask the intelligence community, well, what's going to happen in, you know, situation X? And the answer will always be, well, it could be this Sadipo. or it might be that, but it's uncertain what will happen in the, you know, going forward. It could be alpha or omega. And you know, what uses a policymaker going to make of that? It's totally useless, but that's another issue. Um, and you know, the, the joke about the State Department is, you know, in, in this regard, the policymaker will say, well, what's going to happen? What's your assessment? And the, and the State Department official will wring his hands and say, well, it's very complicated. And we say, well, you know, so, you know, how is that helpful? That's not helpful at all. And then they'll ask the military and the military will say, well, we can capture that hill and, and here's how we're going to do it. And that sounds really impressive, but it doesn't address the question as to, well, why is that hill relevant and should we capture it? You know, <laughs> and, and the intelligence community will say, well, it's all very complicated also. Um, and, and we can gum up the works, but we can't, you know, fix anything. And uh, the policymaker is, you know, feels ill served by all of his supporters, by everyone. So, so, uh, so, so let's get our list. In any event, uh, okay. yeah, what does it mean for so the US? Medium, yeah, so I think medium term, it will be, well, not the US, I, I have in mind yet. Yeah. Uh, for the global south, I think uh, yeah. they can take advantage of this, um, these competing systems. The normative system uh, fundamentally is probably the best. Uh, for uh, frankly everyone and they will benefit from it when they can but if they can cut a, a deal on specific proximate issues uh, with the sphere of influence system to their national advantage they will do so and that will benefit them so india is now getting cut rate oil um, as and saudi arabia is getting a ceasefire in yemen 
which they could neither of which they could have, those countries could have achieved without this uh, sphere of influence system being in existence. So I think that's uh, for the global south. It's medium term, short term, beneficial, long term, harmful. Globally, I think it clearly indicates that there will be lower growth rates. You touched upon there is a dramatic rise, uh, nascent worldwide now in defense spending. Uh, I think this is going to be a uh, a lasting uh, shift for the foreseeable future. Uh, that is overall less economically efficient, uh, a less economically efficient allocation of of uh, capital and resources than uh, if the system follows its natural inclinations through a, a, a more a less directed economy um, economic system. So that will have higher uh, defense budgets, uh, probably lower growth rates, in particular for the sphere of influence countries. And there are really only three or four, which means China, Russia, possibly Iran, North Korea, which is relevant in some bizarre way. Um, and that's sort of it. But that still accounts for 40% of the world's, 30% of the world's population. Um, probably lower growth rates also for uh, the normative system countries and the global south because their resources will not be allocated globally as fluidly uh, and as efficiently. Uh, so that's a harmful uh, thing also. Instead, I, I'm, I'm making the figures up. I don't know. So instead of having average I don't think anyone of, knows. I yeah, think no, to be no fair, I mean, I was speaking to many yeah. economists uh, uh, at the um, at the big conference you have annual conference of the American Economic Association, and uh, many of them, including Nobel laureates, said that yeah. we have no idea uh, of the what sort of growth rates would happen in case a uh, this conflict persists and b um, the tensions with China worsen. So uh, you know if. If the top economists and Nobel Prize winners don't know, then I guess we have a good excuse not to be able to put figures. <laughs> but I think, but we can say with confidence that rates will be lower than they would otherwise be. Yeah. That that probably. I mean, already interest rates are up, and banks right. are in trouble, uh, uh, and already uh, we are seeing uh, uh, the global economy teetering uh, on the brink of um, of a recession. Uh, so, so already we can see the evidence around the world. You know, there will be less investment in uh, going to China, less Chinese investment coming to the sure. to the West and so on. And if there's less investment, there will be less growth rates will be lower. If you have two centers developing uh, a widget, uh, you'll have two widgets, but neither widget will is likely to be as efficiently produced or as technologically advanced as if you can, um, in, a, in a free market system globally, uh, uh, where trade, capital, and labor you know, all flow uh, unhindered, uh, as would be the case if that were... Um, so basically the, the you're saying inflation will go up. We've had uh, a lower rate of inflation. So global consequences, inflation goes up. Uh, interest rates uh, will be higher. Uh, there'll be There's more of a debt crisis. So we are seeing less more macroeconomic instability, inefficient allocation of capital. Um, in terms of to bring your mind back to, and let's wrap this up quickly to the specific yeah. powers, uh, what does it mean for the US? I mean, you are one of the best analysts uh, that yeah. I know of, at least, uh, you know, on this side of the pond. So what, well, what does I think it mean we're going for the to US? See, and I, I think it's likely that we'll see um, 
an increase in defense spending for a, a foreseeable period of time. Um, you have an industrial and, policy now. You have not, the Chips you, Act. You, which, you have which leads protectionism. To an industrial policy is, in the macro perspective, less efficient than than a free market system. Although it will be, lead to the development of domestic, once again, return domestic computer chip industry, say, which uh, had had gone offshore in the last 30 years. Um, so so it, reshoring, that's a good thing in narrow sense. reshoring is back in fashion, nearshoring, friendshoring, all these things. It will probably things. be good for American employment, and uh, uh, but uh, the, the price is uh, less efficient, higher cost mm. uh, development of, of jobs and, and goods. Um, that will be the case for China too. Um, mm -hmm. And then the last point I would add: so those are economic uh, yeah. inefficiencies that will that are built into this clash. Um, is that when you have competing systems that disagree on fundamental tenets and seek the of uh, international relations and seek to project their own power, defend their own interests, there, there's a real risk of clash because there is no arbiter and there is now a real peer to the United States militarily and economically and politically. And uh, people will, if you know, we all know Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it almost always will. And, and uh, that is an alarming prospect because uh, China and the United States, just to cite those two, have conflicting objectives in the South China Sea. And uh, how can you resolve that if you can't, if you don't accept a system of arbitration or or a framework in, in which to act. And, so we are, and in, we are in, in a perilous uh, Thucydides trap, which means that the ruling power and the rising power could clash. They could go to war. The, the odds have significantly increased and probably are continuing to increase. And, and, and I, I remember the, the statistic that is in uh, Allison's Thucydides trap. They analyzed human history. 20 instances in, in the 10,000 years of human history uh, during which a uh, dominant power was challenged by a growing rival at, at the level of um, of the uh, system, global system that then obtained. And in 16 of those 20 instance, instances in human history, going back to the Babylonians and Assyrians up to today, uh, the only way that that clash was resolved was through a major conflict, meaning war. So four times out of five in human history, it has led to major war. And that's so alarming. Everyone should buy defense stocks. And so this has implications particularly for Europe, uh, Japan, and India. Uh, and the Global South, yeah. we've touched upon the Global South will, will cut deals, benefit as, uh, uh, as um, Africa or, or Solomon Islands have done. But for, for Europe... Uh, Europe uh, has depended a lot on both uh, Chinese imports and Chinese investment. In fact, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, flew for a one-day visit all the way from Germany to China and returned. Because um, if China sneezes, Germany catches a cold. Uh, German industry has exported to Chinese markets for a while. In fact, uh, the Chinese make a lot of stuff, but... They use German machines quite often to make a lot of that stuff. And so I'll never forget uh, back uh, when I first visited China 2005. Uh, at that time, I had a Chinese girlfriend uh, and uh, it was very curious. 
because what we found was what I found was uh, there were the hotel was full of Germans and Americans and the Germans were in China selling stuff and the Americans were in China. This is Shanghai buying stuff. And as I cast my eye back to 18 years ago, it summed up in a microcosm uh, what was going on in the global economy. But uh, China, uh, you know, moving away from 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 the U.S. and the global system and emerging as a rival, as a de facto Cold War, new Cold War rival, will mean great strains for Europe, which is already suffering from uh, American protectionism under the Inflation Reduction Act. And so Europe will be squeezed on both ends. It already has higher energy costs thanks to the war. German industry suffering enormously. There was a headline that Mittelstand, which is the, the small and medium-sized industries in Germany, has become Mittelkaput, uh, which is a pretty sensational headline. But it, it, the truth is that when you talk to Germans, um, they can tell you, uh, that it is not the best time for them. Yes, they made many mistakes. They bet too much on Russian gas. Uh, yes, they bet too much on uh, um, uh, ch Chinese markets. In fact, uh, an English friend of mine said that uh, Germany outsourced uh, its security to um, America, its energy to Russia, and its industry to China. And now that is all coming apart. That may be a bit harsh, uh, but it, uh, it sums up the predicament of Germany, the heart of Europe, and of course, the rest of Europe. So Europe will face the squeeze. Um, loss of markets, loss of investments, um, higher energy costs, and, and, and um, sharpening uh, uh, of, uh, of the squeeze. Uh, when it comes to Japan, perhaps they face the biggest challenge. China is next door. Um, both Glenn and I covered in uh, uh, in 2021, if I remember correctly, uh, a little noticed uh, event that we think was extremely significant. Glenn would say consequential. <laughs> and that was the Russian-Chinese joint fleet sailing around Honshu, the main island of Japan. Uh, we should note that even Admiral, uh, or rather even Commodore Perry, was it William Perry? Was his first name, name William? I think so. Uh, yeah, who opened up Japan through gunboat diplomacy, uh, rocking up on America's Japanese shores and basically demanding the open markets. And, and of course, uh, uh, le leading to the Meiji Restoration and, and, and uh, setting the tone for, uh, in some ways, uh, Japan's rise and Japan's own imperialism. But we won't go there. But uh, the, the key point is even Perry didn't circumnavigate Honshu. So what happened was extremely significant. It is the equivalent of someone walking right in front of your front door, waving a gun. And, and so Japan, uh, unsurprisingly, has raised uh, its defense budget from 1% of the GDP to 2% of the GDP. So Japan in particular will have to spend more on defense. Its economy will feel the squeeze, but Japan will have to navigate uh, a world of a rising and threatening China. Uh, India, of course, uh, is in that strange position that it too is resentful of the post-war order because it doesn't have a seat in the UN Security Council, which it feels it should. And the Indians have been very dutiful in sending lots of peacekeepers to UN missions, policemen, police women, in fact, quite a few policemen women recently, and of course, soldiers. And India says, what more do we need to do? 
<laughs> to to get a seat at the top table. And so India is uh, is uh, in a way playing uh, a, a game uh, similar to many in the global south in, in the sense that whilst it does uh, support the post-war order, it, it wants, it's not, um, uh, it's not a revolutionary power, uh, but it's certainly a reformist power. It wants the post-war order to reflect its rise. Uh, so India is going to navigate uh, gently between these two axes because uh, India's military comes, military equipment comes from Russia and India still has huge trading ties with China and India has a long border with China. And India certainly wants um, a closer relationship with the US, uh, which is the biggest uh, investor in India, uh, which is also the biggest trading partner and where most Indians now send their children to do undergrad degrees, um, especially to uh, Glenn's alma mater, Harvard. So India is culturally increasingly close uh, to the US, but India at the same time doesn't want war. And India at the same time does like cheap oil from Russia. So India is going to navigate this world and try and maximize its national interest. So what we'll see in a more specific way is that uh, each of the powers uh, will face some sort of squeeze. Each of the powers will face some kind of uh, uh, increased threat. And we will live in a more fragmented world. Uh, I will let Glenn to have uh, the closing comments and then we'll sign off. Yeah, well, I think you've summarized it very well. There, we have a world of of two and a half um, orders. I guess it was the, the normative order, as I as yeah. I've called it, uh, yeah. the sphere of influence led by order. the U.S. That's by the, the US, Washington consensus, and led and the by UN China, based and, in New York, and then the global south, which I find, frankly, sort of a, a woke euphemism for. Us. But I guess you have to say something for, for some way to characterize what used to be called third world countries. Maybe there's no more third world because the development is or the emerging well. economies, or emerging the poorer, economies. Okay. poorer countries, whatever. The global south, yeah. Yeah. Um, will uh, actually benefit uh, mm -hmm. in in a number of ways, at least medium term, from this. Mm -hmm. And the lower growth rates are a relative um, uh, harm compared to the the benefits of getting cheap oil for immediate development. Just mm -hmm. to cite one example, mm -hmm. um, and that in a, in a more dangerous world. Um, I'm not a, uh, a fatalist or a determinist. You know, the clash is not inevitable, um, but it is more likely in the world that we're living. And um, that's how I think you know, things will probably go. Now, to, or no, not how they will go. That's the world as it already is. Um, the world that I lived in since uh, I was born, it doesn't exist now. It really does. It, it, uh, these are major changes in in 12 months, which I think have crystallized. They've they've been developing for many years, but in the last 12 months, I think we've seen a revolution in world affairs. Um, uh, this is tangential, and, I, and I'll stop here. The, the China's uh, China, India's aspiration to have a seat to be one of the world decisive players, totally understandable given its size and its growth rates and so on. But uh, no power ever, to my knowledge. Uh, whether it's at the, the town level or a state level, has ever willingly ceded uh, power. Uh, so the solution for India is not to seek reform of that which the the people holding the, the uh, uh, levels of influence uh, um, will uh, not agree to reform, but to supplant. And so rather than having 
if I were if I were India, rather than seeking a seat in the Security Council, I would seek to build up, say, the Quad, so that the Quad becomes the decisive element in Southeast Asian, the South Pacific uh, uh, issues, rather than the UN. And then budgets will flow, and so will influence. And China will become a global, India will become a global player, rather than struggling to reform something which the the permanent five members of the Security Council won't agree to. There you go, Glenn. You are also undermining the United Nations now. You're undermining the post-war order itself, <laughs> <laughs> which your which your grandfathers and fathers right. created. There you go. The changed nature of the world. So we are really living in what uh, U.S. military loves calling uh, the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Uh, and I will end with this: that I keep drawing parallels. Um, between this world and the pre-World War I world, uh, Glenn goes back to World War II. And for me, in some ways, uh, uh, the US is like uh, the UK, uh, Great Britain of the time. It is a sprawling global power. The dollar is the reserve currency of the world, just as the pound was at that time. Uh, everyone wants to come to the US to study. Everyone wanted to go to Oxford and Cambridge at that time, especially bright young lads on the make from the former colonies. Um, and um, there was an industrial power that had actually gone beyond the UK, not financially, but industrially, and that was Germany. And today's Germany is China. And there was a crumbling, tottering European empire, uh, which was Austria-Hungary, multi-ethnic, uh, facing tensions. Uh, and that is Russia, uh, which it's Chechens and Dagestanis and, uh, and many minorities. Uh, and uh, just as there were leaders then who were acting a bit too riskily and friskily, I think we have leaders now who, shall we say, are, are thumping their chest a bit too much. And so the stage is set for, for a lovely, lovely, lovely new world order that we are entering and enter the dragon. And uh, good luck to everyone. <laughs> Till the next time. Until next time. Bye for now. <laughs>